be seated. The passage this morning is uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 20. So I'll read the I'll read the chapter. Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 20. God's holy word. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying again, once again, the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his, of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he write this word on our hearts and may he give us true faith to believe all that it teaches. Congregation of the Lord Jesus, this 
chapter is a challenging chapter. Some consider it one of the more difficult chapters in all of Scripture. Uh, and it, it may be that, although I, I don't think it's quite as difficult as, as some would have us to think. And it's certainly not the most difficult thing, and it's not insoluble. Let me give you an example of an insoluble problem. When you get ready to leave the house in the morning, you put on your socks on both feet and then your shoes, or do you put on a sock and a shoe and a sock and a shoe? That's an insoluble problem. I've been thinking about that for a long, long time, probably since I was seven or eight, and I, and I won't tell you how long ago that was, but let's just say I had hair. This is a difficult chapter, but it's not as difficult, I think, as solving the sock and the shoe problem. If you get that figured out, you can send me an email. I'd like to know what to do. The congregation to whom this pastor is writing, this, is, by the way, is a sermon, probably, Book of Hebrews. So if you want to know what New Testament preaching was like, you have a pretty full transcript here in the book of Hebrews. And a lot of it is an exposition of Psalm 110, although there are other, many other passages that he is thinking about as well. And he's uh, sent this sermon, although it's, it's formally structured like a letter at the beginning of the end. The middle of it, though, is a sermon. And he, he has sent this sermon to them as a a reminder, it was probably read out loud by a minister or an elder in the congregation. And he's worried about them because they are being tempted to go back to another mediator. And I like very much what your pastor said during the first part of the service, that uh, he mentioned Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. And that's exactly right. That's one of the great points of the book of Hebrews. And this congregation, primarily made up of Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, people who had professed faith in Christ and yet uh, had uh, Jewish roots, they were being tempted to leave Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to go back to Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, and to go back to types and shadows, to go back to the things that were familiar. They were facing a certain amount of pressure. Some of it may have been Official, there, there's mention of people being in prison and not yet shedding blood, uh, which suggests the possibility of shedding blood. But a lot of the pressure they were facing was probably uh, informal pressure, the kind of pressure that we face in our daily life. You, you go to what kind of a church? You, well, first of all, what's a church? You have to have that conversation. And then for those who have a familiarity, which is a shrinking number apparently, uh, with, with church at all, and you, you go, how often? Every, every Sunday? And wait, you go twice on Sunday? That's crazy. How can you go shopping? I mean, there's surfing, there's mountain climbing, there's shopping. That's, you can't do that. And then you have to explain, well, I go to a Reformed congregation. And then that's a long conversation, too, sometimes an interesting conversation. And then uh, maybe your boss wants you to come in on the Lord's Day. Well, we have this deadline that's coming up, and we really need you. I've faced that kind of pressure, not at my current employer, but I've had bosses. They're pretty understanding about Sunday, which is good. But I had a boss who, uh, who hired me a long time ago, and uh, I said, look, I'll take, I can take this job. I'm happy to do it, but I can't work on Sundays. And he said, well, I don't like it, but okay. 
And about three weeks later, he said, I know what we agreed to, but we really need you on Sundays. And the implication was, well, if you really want this job, if you really are a team player, I think he played the team player card. So I understand some of the pressure that, that, uh, that, that you face. And so uh, we understand some of the pressure that the people in this congregation were, were facing. Some of it, as I say, mocking and maybe as much as jail and, and maybe even beyond. And so they were tempted to turn away, tempted to go back to the mediator of the Old Covenant, tempted to go back to the types and shadows, the things that they could uh, see, the things that they could uh, taste and touch, in a sense, um, and to turn away from Jesus. And the writer to the Hebrews wants them to understand that that is no small thing, turning away from Jesus as the mediator of the new Covenant. Now, as I said, this is a difficult passage, and there, uh, there are a variety of ways in which it's been interpreted, but there are three main views. Uh, one says that these people that are being described here who uh, either are, are about to fall away or perhaps have fallen away uh, are actual believers uh, who've been, uh, who have uh, uh, new life but uh, have lost their faith and lost their new life. Uh, that view is wrong, but that's, a, that's a, a view of this passage that is widely held. And another um, that I read recently says that the punishments that are being uh, threatened here that we'll look at in a moment, both here in chapter 6 and in chapter 10, are, are temporal punishments. They're not really uh, eternal punishments, and I think that view is wrong, and I think we can show that fairly clearly. And the third view is the view that I, I want to try to work through with you this morning in this passage. And, and that's, I think, the biblical view, and it's certainly the view that most of our uh, pastors and teachers over the uh, hundreds of years of the Reformed churches have held. And, and, and it affirms both that all those who come to faith come to faith uh, by the unconditional grace of God. Right? So that's our starting point. But, and yet, at the same time, uh, that he administers his grace uh, in a covenant community, that what we do here on the Lord's Day when we gather is real. We're not simply going through the motions. And one of the things that the writer to the Hebrews, the pastor to the Hebrews, wants you to understand this morning is that as we gather here in covenant community and the minister raises his hands and says things and administers the Lord's Supper and administers baptism and maybe even reads a sentence of church discipline, as awesome and, and terrible as that is, that those are real things through which God operates and that there are spiritual realities and changes that are actually taking place through the administration of the covenant of grace, that the administration is real, that the Spirit operates through the preaching of the Word and the administration of the sacraments, and that people, yeah, even people who uh, are only making profession of faith and have not yet been given the grace of new life and, and faith in Christ, even those who participate in that administration really do participate in striking and remarkable ways. And that the mere participation in the outward administration of the covenant community is not sufficient, and more than that, it can even be dangerous. That's what the writer to the Hebrews wants them to understand. So the first third of the passage is uh, bad news, but the, the second two-thirds are good news. So we'll try to treat this passage 
uh, proportionately. All right, so looking, starting at verse 4, which is where this section, I think, really uh, begins, he says, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, and we'll come back to this in a second, who have tasted, and I want you to pay attention here, who have tasted the heavenly gift. So those who, who are enlightened in this passage are those who have tasted. That's the same group. So when he says tasted, he's explaining what he means by enlightened. So you can't just stop at enlightened, camp out and say, aha, I know what this means. Right? No, let, you have to let the passage, let the pastor tell you what it means. And he does. Who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit... And that first interpretation I just mentioned a minute ago, right, those folks are saying, aha, there it is. They've, they've been enlightened, they've tasted, and they've shared. These are true believers. Not so fast. And they've tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying again, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, what, what is this? Well, this is an example of, we could say, old covenant prophetic speech. This is very much the kind of language that the, both the major and the minor prophets used as they preached to the covenant community, both to the, in the north and in the south. And we could call these covenant curses, which is what I did in the title, or we could say, we could also describe this as an expression of covenantal concern. An expression of covenantal concern. Concern about the spiritual state of some within the visible covenant community. And he expresses this concern in very strong terms. And it's language that's meant to be taken seriously and not dismissed or, or, or sort of waved away. In fact, he's so concerned that he actually uses a very similar language in chapter 10. If you look at chapter 10, if you want to, uh, starting in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is not temporal punishment that's being described here. It's not the language of temporal punishment. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is, is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, it was a terrible thing that happened in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And this was written... Uh, probably you know, in the mid-60s, so in anticipation of the destruction of Jerusalem, before the destruction of Jerusalem. And our Lord Jesus warned right, that about 30 years hence, didn't say the, the 
obviously the number of years, but he warned that destruction was coming, and it did come, and it was a terrible thing, but the language that's being used here is not of the destruction of the temple and of the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the inhabitants. It's the language of of eternal judgment, trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant. This is the language of divine judgment against unbelief and sin. This is the language, uh, both here in 6 and in 10, uh, this language goes back to the making of covenants in the, in the uh, Old Testament and in the ancient world. And I know you're well familiar with that. You've had that explained to you many times, so I won't go through that again with you. But you understand that the making of these covenants was a very serious business, and it entailed both blessings and curses. If the terms of the covenant were met, there were blessings. If the terms of the covenant were not met, there were curses and judgment. And, of course, we understand that. Children, your, your mom and dad have made covenants like this. Your mom and dad have sworn solemn oaths and covenants before the Lord and before civil authorities. When they got married, they swore a covenant to be faithful to one another. And in California, the curse of not being faithful is losing half of your property. That's a curse that comes upon covenant breakers. If you bought a house, your mom, if you live in a house and your mommy and daddy are paying the bank for the privilege of living in that house, they've sworn covenant oaths. And they've said, may it be to me as it is to the, to the dead squirrel in the street if I break this covenant. May the bank come and take my house and throw me out in the street and, and my couch. That's a covenant that we've all sworn. So we still swear covenant oaths and we still uh, uh, face covenant curses, but the curses here are, are much greater than the kinds of curses even that we've mentioned so far. So, so how do we deal with this language then in verses 4 and following? Well, who are these people? Well, to restore again to repentance those who have been enlightened. It's impossible, he says. So that's a very serious term. He, he only uses this word impossible a few times, and he, and he uses it in a very strong sense in each case in the book of Hebrews. Well, who are they? Well, they've been enlightened. Well, what does it mean to be enlightened? Well, it's possible that it refers to baptism, and if it did, that would make a nice parallelism with the tasting language that comes, and that's certainly a possibility. I mean, tasting, here we have the Lord's Supper set before us that we'll observe here shortly as soon as the sermon is, is done. And so that's certainly a possibility. But if we look at the way this language is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, it typically has two senses, a, a metaphorical sense and a literal sense, uh, metaphorically, uh, it means to come to an understanding. Literally, it means to be in a dark place and to have someone light a, a lamp of some kind. We went, uh, Mrs. Clark and I went for a, a walk last night. We, w- we waited until it cooled down and we went for our, our daily walk and, and we take a flashlight because as it, as it gets darker, it gets harder to see and our eyes don't work as well as they used to. And so it's remarkable what a big change uh, a powerful little flashlight can make as you're walking on a dark sidewalk. Ah, there's a big piece of pavement that's sticking up. Good thing we had the flashlight, otherwise I would have tripped and bad things would have happened. So that's a literal enlightenment, but a figurative enlightenment is coming to a certain understanding about the truth of things. 
And I think the writer to the Hebrews, the pastor to the Hebrews, is using that language of enlightenment in that figurative sense, which is used in the, in the Old Testament on a, on a fairly regular basis. So, th- so that's referring to the intellect, I think. People have come to a certain intellectual apprehension of the truth of Christianity and of the, of the truths about Jesus, the Messiah. And then when he says tasting, he's referring to, uh, I think, uh, what we might call the heart, uh, the affective faculty. People have had uh, a genuine experience or some kind of, maybe not genuine, but some kind of significant real experience of grace, truth, presence of Christ, Uh, the Christian faith. In other words, they've been in the Christian community. They've been in the visible church. They've participated in it. And they've had a significant experience of it. They've tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how how could this possibly not be a believer? And, And my answer is, well, think back to the history of Israel. This language could all be and was used to describe the the journey of the Israelites through the wilderness. Manna came, quail came, and the Holy Spirit uh, uh, led them by fire at night and cloud during the day through the wilderness. And we are that wilderness people. We are a new covenant wilderness people. And just as it was possible, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, just as it was possible for them to be baptized and for them to have communion as it were, he makes that direct analogy between the the quail, the manna, and and, uh, walking through the, the Red Sea with our experience, our existence as baptized Christians who participate in the Lord's table. Just as it was possible for them to participate in these things and yet not believe, And we know that's the case. Many of them didn't enter into the promised land. Many of them didn't believe. Many of them did fall away. And the pastor to the Hebrews is warning us that we're not in that sense, although we have far greater blessings and realities because we are in the new covenant. It is possible, however, to participate in the administration of the new covenant and yet not receive the benefits and only receive curses. Let me say that again. It is possible to participate in the administration of the new covenant and yet not receive the benefits but only receive curses. Because if that participation is not with, through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, ultimately it is only judgment. And that's important because there are a lot of, of our evangelical friends who hold a Baptist view of the church and sacraments that would say that there is only one way to relate to the covenants of grace or the new, uh, the new administration of the covenant of grace. And that's simply not true. And the book of Hebrews is testimony to the fact that view is not true. Th- these people were participants in the administration of the covenant of grace. They're members of the covenant community. They they have stood before God and made professions of faith and they have said, this is for me, we believe it. And yet some of them are being tempted to turn away and the writer to the Hebrews, the pastor to the Hebrews is warning them, he's expressing concern and warning them about the consequences of tasting 
of, of coming to a certain understanding and yet of turning away. And this really presses upon us, and we'll move on now, but it, this really presses upon us, should press upon us, the importance of the administration, that there are real spiritual realities. Let me remind you that Paul tells the Corinthians that when they gathered for public worship, angels were present. Children, I know that in some places there are congregations where people, they wave their hands and they kind of go crazy and the band is playing away. You'll notice there's no band here. And Pastor Brown isn't a rock star. I mean, maybe he is in some sense, but not in the sense in which we're thinking of it. He's not closing his eyes and wailing away on a guitar. It's, there's, a, there's a reality that is true and present when we gather for public worship. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews says that we worship God with reverence and awe. Because when we gather children and when the minister uh, greets us in the name of the Lord and he prays, as far as we understand Scripture, reading the book of Hebrews, the heavens are opened and we are standing before the face of the living God and we've been lifted up into the heavenlies in Christ. And so the worship is a joyful thing, but it's also a very serious thing. And we can be joyful and serious without being stodgy or dull. Heaven forbid that worship should ever be dull. We're standing before the face of the living God and thinking about God the Son who came into history and the Holy Spirit who's been poured out and given us new life and united us to Christ and lifted us up. How could that possibly ever be anything but thrilling? And yet all of this does go through, we do go through, experience a, a reality of administration, and therefore apostasy is a real thing. It's not the case that those for whom Jesus laid down his life can ever be lost. It is not the case that those for whom Jesus laid down his life can ever be lost. No one shall snatch them from my hand. That is the word of God. But it is possible for people to participate in the administration of the covenant community in an outward way, and yet fall away. And in that sense, apostasy is a very real thing. And we ought not to be careless about it. If only for the language, if only for the reasons that the writer to the Hebrews gives us. Think about trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant shed by Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was, as it were, split asunder for us who believe. What we do here every week matters. And when we turn away, we put Jesus back on the cross. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says. We strip him naked, and we beat him, and we spit on him, and we put him back on the cross. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says. And when we do that, it manifests what we are. And therefore, the writer to the Hebrews says that this is a final thing. It is not possible, he says. This is the gravest, most serious language that he could use. He couldn't put it any more powerfully. It's not possible to renew those unto repentance who fall into this category. So you're duly warned this morning.
all of you here. And nevertheless, he says, I am confident of better things about you. Now, what, what is happening in verses 9 through 12? Did the, having given this harsh warning, did he lose his nerve? Did he think, oh my, this kind of language will never go over well and maybe I'll have to look for a new call? Maybe, maybe they won't like me? No. No, he, he expresses, not having expressed the danger of covenant curses and expressed covenant concern, he goes on to express covenant confidence. Though we speak in this way, he says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Why? Because he believes their profession of faith. Having warned them about the danger, the very real danger of trampling underfoot, re-crucifying Jesus, yet he says, I, I, I'm confident of better things because I believe your profession of faith. God, he says, is not so unjust in verse 10 as to overlook your, your work and, and the love that you showed uh, serving the saints. This was not an easy time to be a Christian. This was not a time when people were affirming them in their faith. This was a time when people were being challenged, threatened, mocked, and even jailed. And as my colleague Steve Ball reminded me recently, in the ancient world, uh, we, they didn't put people away for 20 or 30 years and give them exercise equipment and television privileges. It was a holding cell, basically, for disposition. And for Christians, disposition was frequently not pleasant. Already, this is uh, about the same time this is being written, Christians are facing death in Rome. Now, we don't know where, these, where this congregation is. Some have suggested it's Rome. It may be, but we, we really don't know that. But wherever they are, they are facing some serious challenges. I do, want, I do hope we remember that, loved ones, that however difficult things may seem for us at times in this life and in this world, and they do. If you just look around and read the news, things do seem to be increasingly difficult for believers but they're not yet putting us in jail and they're not yet covering us with tar. There was a time when people were really covered with tar and they were set on fire simply for refusing to, to acknowledge Caesar as God. Do you understand that in the ancient world, in the, particularly in the early 2nd century, the only thing the Romans asked the Christians to do was to denounce Jesus and they knew that Nobody meant it when they did it. They understood it was just a ritual. They just wanted you to say the words. You had to denounce Jesus, and you had to say that Caesar is Lord. And if you did that, you could uh, potentially be, uh, avoid being set on fire. And many of us refused to do it. We refused to do it. One very famously said, has my Lord been so gracious to me all these 86 years and, and now I should turn my, my back on him? And they took that old man, Polycarp, and they murdered him simply for refusing to say that Caesar is Lord and refusing to denounce Jesus. So he says, look, I, I have reason for my confidence in you. I see evidence that you believe. 
And, and, and I'm hopeful that you'll continue. I, I'm, I desire that you'll continue to grow and show the same earnestness so that you'll have the same full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. He's going to tell us in chapter 11 more about those who, who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And he says some of those were, were, were drawn asunder for their faith. So when he talks to us about faith and patience and perseverance, he's not speaking lightly. He's not speaking casually. He's, he, he knows whereof he speaks. So we should have confidence if we believe in Jesus. That's what I want to leave you with in this second part. If we are trusting in Jesus, if you are trusting in Jesus, you should have confidence. If you're not trusting in Jesus, you should be afraid. It's very clear. And in that sense, this passage is not that difficult. If you're going through the motions, if you're simply saying the words, then you should be very uncomfortable. But if you have trusted in Jesus, then you should be sure that he loves you, he laid down his life for you, and he will never lose you. And again, children, understand that if you love Jesus, if you've trusted him, he will never let go of you, no matter what anyone says to you. Nothing can change that. And, and the reason I know that's true is because he laid down his life so that you would always belong to him. And he was raised from the dead on the third day. They went to the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And that's why you can be sure that he loved you. And he's ascended. He's at the right hand. He's standing before the Father, and he's praying for you. We're going to come to that in a minute. He's standing before the Father, praying for you by name. He loves you. And he's protecting you. And he's caring for you. And you trust that. You believe that, and you never doubt that, no matter what anyone else ever says. Because nothing that any person, any human being says to you can ever change what Jesus has said and Jesus has done. Finally, then, at the end, the last part of the passage, he promises a blessings to those who believe. Look at verse 13. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. We've been, some of us have been watching a trial on television this last week. And when we go uh, on the witness stand, sometimes we have to swear an oath. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Right? We swear an oath. Do you know that God has sworn an oath? When you swear an oath, right, that's serious business. Even, even as children, we knew that, right? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Don't do that. You shouldn't even take those oaths. Those are vain oaths. But little pagans running around that we were in our neighborhood, we didn't know. And we knew that there, were, there was power in oaths. And sometimes we would even spit on our hands, right? Right? And rub our hands together to seal an oath. We had little sacraments. <laughs> and if it was really, really serious, we might even shed some blood. We even knew something about blood oaths. How remarkable was that? The ancient Near Eastern world being repeated in our neighborhood as we <laughs> formed little 
gangs and alliances. And God has sworn an oath, an eternal oath to himself and among the persons of the Holy Trinity. The Father has said to the Son, I will give you a people. I will give you a people. And the Son said, I will redeem those people. And then he did it. It's the most remarkable thing. I mean, in this world, how many times have people said, yeah, I will be there at at, at 10.15. And at 10.15 you get a call, well, I'm, I'm in traffic, which means I haven't quite gotten out of the shower yet. I mean, people lie all the time. They break covenants all the time. That's why there are repossessions. And we have television shows about people who repossess things. That's all about covenant breaking and the consequences. God made a promise against his own life. May it be to me, as it is to these animals, if I break this covenant... And then he sent his only begotten son. And the son voluntarily, voluntarily entered into human history, was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, took on his humanity from her by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit and fulfilled those covenant promises and became the final sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice that Hebrews talks about again and again for all those for whom he came, all those whom he loved from all eternity, those whom the Father gave to him. And then the Holy Spirit was poured out, once for all, sealing that covenant made between the Father and the Son from all eternity, that unchangeable, unbreakable covenant that he swore, that Psalm 110, verse 4, describes a solemn covenant oath that he swore and that he fulfilled. We have good reason for confidence because we, have been, uh, we are the recipients by God's undeserved favor alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, the Lamb of God, the High Priest. And thus Abraham, he says in verse 15, having uh, waited patiently, obtained the promise. This is very interesting. And I know we need to begin to draw this to a close, but this is very interesting because two other times, at least in the book of Hebrews, it speaks about people not receiving the things that were promised. And yet here it says that Abraham did receive what was promised. But it wasn't the land, not during his life, and it wasn't the, all the nations of the earth. What then did he receive? He received Jesus. He received the fulfillment of the promise by faith. 2,000 years before it happened, he received it. And so too, when you trust Jesus, you also receive it. And you are on this side of the cross. We're not looking forward to a cross and to an empty tomb. We're looking back at the finished reality. Certified by God.
People swear by something greater. There's nothing greater than God. How certain are God's promises? They are as certain as God is. Children, when will God die? That's a trick question. You knew that was a trick question, right? He will never die. God just is. Before you were, God was. After we die, God will still be. Before the world came into existence, before he spoke creation into existence by his sovereign power, God was. In fact, he says, I am what I am. I just am. Moses says, who, who, do I, who shall I say sent me? God says, tell them I am sent you. Which is an amazing thing to think about. Because everything, that we, everything else that we know in this world is essentially might be. Do you understand that? Everything else in this world is essentially might be. I might take this job. I might go to work. I might get cancer. There are a lot of mites. They're all in God's sovereign good pleasure. But God just is. God, there's no might about God. He just is. And Jesus said, I am. He's the I am. The one who said to Moses, tell them, I am. That's the one who came. That's the one who obeyed. That's the one who was stripped. That's the one who was beaten. That's the one who was crucified. That's the one who died. And that's the one who was laid in the tomb. And that's the one who who was raised on the third day. And that's the one who was ascended and who was seated at the right hand of the Father. How sure can you be? You can be as sure as God is in Jesus Christ. We have great blessings then. Great covenant blessings in Jesus Christ by his unmerited favor. Unmerited by us, merited for us by Christ and received through trusting in Jesus only. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast. Don't go back to Moses. Don't go back to mites. Don't go back to whatever it is someone's offering you. Don't go back to the daily sacrifice of the Mass. It's foolishness. Once for all. There's no more sacrifices. We hold fast to the hope that's set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. Don't you understand that everybody else but Jesus, everybody else but the biblical faith that we confess is offering you a might of some kind? Well, if you do your part, you might make it. The the, the writer to the Hebrews says, we have a sure and steadfast anchor. There's no might. There's only is. And we don't have to parse is. We know what is, is. We have a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that, that, that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. 
You know why there's no railing up here? And why your minister wears a robe but, is, but, but not, doesn't dress like a priest? This is a preacher's robe, not a priest's surplus, vestment, stole. That's why this is a supper and not a sacrifice. Because we have a sure anchor. A once for all sacrifice. We are already in the inner place. Everyone who has trusted in Jesus is seated with him in the heavenlies, is standing with him as a high priest in the Holy of Holies. That's why it's foolishness to go any other place, to any other mediator, to any other system or offer, because it's empty. It's a lie. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is in the Holy of Holies. Where he's gone, it says in verse 20, as a forerunner on our behalf. Not if you do your part, but because he's done his part and he has graciously endowed you with new life and faith and union with him through that faith. We have a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We don't have an Aaronic high priest. We don't have a high priest who dies every so many years and has to be replaced by another high priest who dies. We have a high priest who died once and ever lives to pray for you, to protect you, to love you, to hear your prayers and to secure your salvation. Just like Melchizedek came from nowhere, as it were, and disappeared and was only here for a short while, as far as we know from Scripture. So Jesus is that kind of a priest. He came, he did his work, and he's now doing his work for you. Let's give thanks for his mercy to us sinners. Father, we're grateful this morning for your covenant mercies to us, your grace, your covenant grace. You've said, I will be a God to you and to your children after you, and you have fulfilled that covenant. You've been faithful, so faithful to secure it that you sent your only begotten Son to fulfill the promise that you made to us and for us. And this morning we again receive that promise by your grace, by your mercy, by your kindness. O oh Lord, strengthen us this week in that truth, in that reality. When we are tempted, O oh Lord, to turn, to look to something else, let us, by your grace, turn back to the one who is the one who is interceding, the one who is hearing, the one who was raised, and the one who is trustworthy, the one over whose body the oath was sworn and who fulfilled that oath for us. Hear our prayer. Be gracious to us this week. Work powerfully through the foolishness of this word to conform us more and more to Christ, putting to death more and more that part of us that would turn away. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.